0: This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
2: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined, I'm Michael Casey. Among the many lessons learned from the FTX debacle, one should now be fairly obvious. The crypto industry needs far better risk management and compliance. And if crypto companies are going to prepare themselves better for financial risks like the ones that have been unleashed in this past month, they should also be protecting themselves from the mother of all risks, attacks by rogue states. That's the argument of today's Money Reimagined guest, Juan Ruddy, a ruddy point that raises all sorts of thorny second round questions about balancing the need for security with privacy. We'll dive into all of that with Juan, who is a senior advisor for the Transnational Threats Project and Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, also known as CSIS. Juan wrote a report for the Crypto Council on Innovation entitled The North Korean Crypto Threat. It touched on a topic at the heart of the controversial action from the US Office of Foreign Assets Control early this year when it placed a ban on crypto mixer Tornado Cash. As a reminder, the Crypto Council on Innovation CEO is Sheila Warren, my Money Reimagined co-host. Speaking of Sheila, let's bring her in before we get to Juan. Sheila is back from a break. How are you? Good to see you. And the world is a little different from the last time. Uh, yeah, podcast together.
0: Well, I think the lesson is there are no breaks because uh, even in my attempts to be away, you know, there's just there was just so much going on this past week. Of course, this Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States, so a lot of us were you know, enjoying our turkey dinners. But yeah, what a month, really. <laughs> Where to begin? Where to begin?
2: Yeah, we had a really, really nice recording with Nick Day and and Tracy Wang from from CoinDesk, just a really interesting look at the interesting juxtaposition between the image of sam bankman freed that prevailed for some time and the reality that had sort of just emerged in the day before we had the recording of the podcast from john J. ray's astounding bankruptcy filing yeah uh, and then we d- drilled down quite nicely into like how it is that these images can can affect the way that decisions get made and how the right questions are not necessarily being asked and so forth so a lot of huge lessons for, for all of us here.
0: Well, and I think you know I think you have to contextualize this and it, it, with with what's going on at Twitter and just the the comedy of the purchasing of the eight dollar you know blue check mark and all the, the parody accounts that emerged immediately and just the idea that the image we can present digitally we've talked about this in so many of our NFT episodes and other episodes on the show the image you can present online you know is in the best sense can be a facet of who you are that you didn't have a chance to express because of you know whatever reasons, which can include horrible reasons like bigotry and all kinds of things. Or they can give you a chance to really just invent a personality to some extent, you know, and invent yeah. or exaggerate aspects of your personality. And so watching what's been happening in the context of seeing what's going on with Twitter, I think has just been a, what a statement about our digital age and, and the, the challenges but also opportunities there.
2: Yeah, I mean, remembering that human beings are still... The vulnerable point in all of this. Human's
0: gonna human, like you know. I love exactly
2: (laughs) right. We can have the best protocols you have, the most amazing math and cryptography, but eventually we build these systems that depend upon human beings, partly because we believe in them, and then they let us down. And that's something that we really need to be cognizant of. On that note, let's bring in our guest. Let's get Juan in here because I think uh, one of the interesting things about the paper that uh, you know you wrote for the CCI, Juan, was that you. Really, somewhat presciently, we're looking at the, the need for the industry to grow up in terms of its risk management. And wow, have we had a uh, proof of the pudding in the last few weeks? There's clearly risk management challenges here. But you were thinking about this from a, from a broader scale, looking at counterterrorism issues and sort of the real risk of that threat. Put it all together for us, if you don't mind. How does this all tie in and, and maybe give a quick uh, precease of what your paper was about?
1: Well, Mike and Sheila, this is a pleasure to be with you. Really appreciate the invitation. You know, I've been privileged because I've been part of the national security community for uh, almost my entire career. And I've been watching the the, sort of the birth and the evolution of the crypto industry for some time, been advising Coinbase since 2014. Uh, And so I've watched the phases of the crypto maturity take place in the marketplace and also uh, the the challenge of the risks that have emerged uh, from a national security perspective. And so, Michael, what, what I witnessed and what Sheila and I talked about in the piece uh, on North Korean uh, crypto threat was really this broader problem and challenge of risk management and maturity in the crypto ecosystem. We had crossed the Rubicon of legitimacy with crypto, been sort of adopted uh, by the markets, uh, seen as legitimate, but there was a sense of crypto euphoria that I think uh, was overtaking the environment. And my point in the piece, and I think what I've been saying for some time now is we have to look at the crypto economy and the technology as we do other domains of the financial or economic system. We have to engage in mature risk management. We've got to understand that not every exchange is the the same, not every cryptocurrency is the same. It's not uh, black or white that there's a lot of gray in the crypto economy. Uh, And there's certainly a lot of risk uh, from a national security perspective. And and North Korea, in some ways, is the pinnacle of that risk. It's a convergence of a a rogue state that has determined to use its uh, cyber capabilities to engage in crypto heists and, and cyber heists and to profit from the crypto economy and to abuse the crypto economy. And so the point of the piece and the point of a lot of things I've been saying and writing about is that we've got to mature how we... Uh, how we regulate the sector, how we think about risk, how we enforce. And certainly when you have the convergence of risk, like you see in North Korea, where where you've got a national security threat meeting a threat to financial integrity and cybersecurity, we have to collectively focus on those high risks and make sure that we're doing everything possible, not just from government agencies, but also the private sector to attack those risks and prevent uh, the abuse of the system. So one, let's back up a little bit and start with this concept of of a
0: rogue state, right? Because that is a bit of a term of art. It's something that has evolved over time, and I think to your point, now DPRK is kind of seen as like the platonic ideal, if you will, you know, kind of a rogue state, right? And just its determination or insistence on flouting any sort of international conventions or anything else. But but how does national security establishment think about or conceive of of this rogue state concept, and what are perceived as the biggest threats that come out of, of that locus.
1: Sheila, it's a great question, in part because there isn't an established doctrine around this, there isn't an international treaty that establishes the definition of a rogue state. But in, in essence, in, at least in the U.S. national security parlance, the way that rogue states are defined are, are those states that represent a national security threat, like in North Korea, like in Iran, that are engaged in activities that are counter to U.S. interests, They're also engaged in a range of activities that challenge international norms. And so they're, in some ways, scoff laws. They're, they're, according to the U.S. and often European and other partners, uh, doing things that are illegal under international law. And third and most importantly, they're actors that are actually engaged in illicit activity. And so from a financial and commercial perspective, you often hear about rogue states that are subject to sanctions. These are states like North Korea that are, Purposely engaging in things like money laundering and, and trafficking of, of all sorts of things that are engaged in, as, as we call North Korea, the sort of the mafia state. They, they they look like criminal actors themselves, and so you know. So the fullest definition of a rogue state is one that presents a national security risk, one that's that's evading the law or pushing the bounds of international norms, and then third, actively engaged in illicit activity. That therefore makes them subject to a whole host of countermeasures, sanctions, and other enforcement actions that uh, the U.S. certainly pushes and that the international community uh, often imposes on these states. But there isn't a clean definition. But it, in some ways, you know, if you ask the U.S. national security official, what's a rogue state, you know, you'll know it when you see it kind of thing. And so you're talking about, you know, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela. These are, these are the regimes that are subject to sanctions and, and, and international opprobrium.
0: Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock on chain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the white rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com.
2: So Juan, the international element versus the US definition is leading me down a path that I, uh, I'm always interested in with the crypto space. And that is that you have this tension all the time between the policies of distinct nation states and the fact that this technology is borderless and you can just pick up and move anywhere else. And, and this has become obviously, again, quite pertinent in the FTX context. We, in fact, had the Bahamas Attorney General rather angrily defending uh, his, his government's position. They've come under some attack, obviously, because of FTX's failings there under their watch, and making the case that it's been very difficult to maintain a sound regulatory stance because of the inconsistency of rules around the world and the lack of any clear guidelines. I'm wondering, when it comes to that, how you think about what the US policy stance should be not necessarily what the position should be about security and privacy, and we can talk about that later, but rather, how does it go about ensuring that it almost has international support, that it is an internationally defined approach to these, this counterterrorism problem, and therefore sort of relevant for the entire industry, wherever it is around the world, as opposed to this sort of US imposed position, which in many, many ways creates certain problems with this space.
1: The challenge of the lack of regulation, the lack of clarity, and the opportunity for regulatory arbitrage that then moves the technology or actors offshore and even innovation offshore is a major concern. You know, the reality is the regulatory regime is catching up to the technology. In some ways, we'll constantly be trying to catch up to the technology as it emerges, and if you think about not just uh, you know the classic virtual asset service providers, but you think about Web 3.0 platforms and exchanges, you think about NFTs, you think about all the technologies that are coming online, regulators around the world are just trying to, to catch up. They're just trying to learn. And so there are a few answers to this. You know, I haven't read the full statement from the Bahamian Attorney General, and I don't want it to be overly critical. But I think it's too easy to say, you know, there's lack of international agreement, uh, therefore, you know, there's a reason why we weren't as vigilant around what was happening on, you know, with a registered bohemian institution. Every country unto itself has a responsibility to regulate under its laws and norms, institutions that will operate and to make sure that they're operating transparently, legally, they're not engaged in consumer fraud, they're not engaged in other illegal behavior trafficking. So regardless of whether or not there's an international agreement or international norms, every nation state that's trying to regulate the technology or those engaged in the, in the use of the technology, they have to figure out how to do it. The U.S. has been pretty good, actually, although there's a lack of general clarity in terms of market practice, lending, trading, all these other things, which, which is critical in the case of FTX. For purposes of anti-money laundering and sanctions, You know, the regulators in the U.S. have been pretty clear that uh, the same expectations that apply to banks and other financial institutions apply to virtual asset service providers. For example, the the registration requirement uh, as a money service business for you know the Coinbase's and Circles of the world, which which do register. So I think the first answer is every country has to regulate according to its laws, and they have to do that in a way that uh, catches up to the technology. The second thing that has to happen is there has to be agreement among the major economies, the major banking centers. You've seen that with the G7, the G20. Discussions with the Financial Action Task Force, trying to come to some agreement on the core principles for regulation, understanding it's still largely in formation. That explains why the FATF, for example, as it's often called, has said that the travel rule needs to apply in the crypto economy. What's the travel rule? This is one of the core principles in the anti money laundering system that says you have to know who the originator of a wire transfer or a value transfer is, and you have to know who the ultimate beneficiary is. And the information has to travel with that wire or transfer of value. Well, that's, that's difficult in the crypto economy. Frankly, it's difficult in a digital payment system, put aside crypto that's growing more and more disintermediated. But these are important principles that are being espoused that everyone can then grapple with and, and, and debate, et cetera. So that's a second avenue, Michael. It's working through these channels that are already established to establish norms and principles. The third thing that's going to happen here, I think, Michael, with with so many of the countries around the world, I think over 104 at this point, exploring central bank digital currencies, there's going to be the establishment of more centralized regimes and rules in this space that then get coordinated via the central banks and via institutions like the, the, the Bank of International Settlements. And so there are... I think mechanisms where these regimes and regulations are, are going to continue to mature, in part because governments themselves are going to have to mature the way that they are adopting digital assets or deciding uh, to use them.
0: You know, one, and there's so many directions that, so many things I want to ask you as, as a follow-up, But but let's start with this. What I'm hearing you say is that even if there were some international norms around any of this, right? Which, which to some extent there are. I think we can argue that certain kinds of principles do port into you know, the digital asset ecosystem, whether or not that's widely acknowledged is an open question, but it would still be up to individual nation states to instantiate those principles into you know, rules and requirements, licenses, whatever it is, and to ensure to the extent they're capable of doing so, that any actor that was regulated by their particular regime was in compliance with whatever rules they laid out. So you've got that just general, anything international that is going to be somewhat principles-based at a level of some abstraction that's going to leave it up to individual nation state actors to decide what does that look like in their jurisdiction. And of course, there's an element of competition we should be honest about in these jurisdictions trying to attract this new industry, you know, et cetera. Then you've got FATF, Financial Action Task Force, right? which does lay down rules. You talked about TFR, the travel rule, something very specific that does have more detailed requirements at a level maybe a level of, it's a little bit more concrete what that means. And the challenge there is what does that mean as we have a new form factor? It's not so much that the intention changes because it has not, although one would argue, could argue that it arguably should or might need to in the new context. But how, literally, how do you implement something like that in this new context? And so what do you see as the roles of FATF or bodies like FATF, you know, in this, and I, in here I even go to like the BIS, like just kind of these coordinating bodies that do exist, that have put down some rules of the road uh, versus a kind of a more principles based international approach versus any individual jurisdiction. And you've seen such high differentiation. You've got the, you know, the rules in Singapore, you've got the Bahamas, we've mentioned a few times, you've got the US who's still sort of sorting some of this out. You've got the EU that's come down with, again, some principles are going to have to, the nation states are going to have to implement there within, you know, within Europe. How do we make sense of this? And what is your view on the importance, in the first instance, of international coordination and the practical reality of being able to affect something like that in the context of trying to stop rogue states from engaging in these activities?
1: Yeah, I think there, there's not only a hope, I think there's, there's the very clear a direction of establishing what are norms for uh, you know, legitimate behavior in the crypto economy. You know, The FTX scandal here is going to further refine what that means and looks like, certainly from a fraud and consumer protection uh, perspective. But I think it's going to accelerate this, this question of what, what does legitimate look like? The movement toward trying to define the, the guardrails of what legitimacy looks like, what kind of trading is allowed? What kind of transactionality? What, what does substitute for the travel rule if you can't implement it by the letter of, of the law? Right, All of that is where we're headed. The regulatory arbitrage part is not new, of course. And the ability to deal with multi-jurisdictional regulations and laws is not new. We've dealt with that with multinational corporations. We have uh, major global banks. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that you've got You know, something registered in Bahamas, operating in the U.S., operating in Singapore. That's not the problem. The problem is, what are the rules of the road in terms of legitimate behavior? In that regard, Sheila, I think we need both the the rule setting, broadly speaking, the principles, and then we need more refinement as to what this means in practice. Uh, And I think that's where, uh, frankly, the industry has a lot to say. Keep in mind that, you know, the, the Wolfsburg Group of Banks, the major global banks around the world... Uh, got together, I can't remember what year, but th- they decided to, to converge in part to help set standards for themselves and the marketplace. That is to say, they themselves understood best, for example, how to engage in responsible correspondent banking uh, globally. Uh, and so they themselves began to set rules and standards and, and protocols that the regulators have now acknowledged and even adopted. And so I think something similar has to happen in this domain where the responsible VASPs, the responsible technology platforms and exchanges have to think hard about how we ensure that legitimate market practice is able to be adopted, can be regulated, can be audited, and and can operate. Just a final point on this. I think the biggest challenge here, uh, Sheila, is less how you regulate legitimate actors. It's what you indicated. How do you deal with the dark corners of this universe that that purposely are not compliant? And how do you deal with technologies that are not centralized, that make it very hard to pinpoint regulatory responsibility? And so when you're talking about peer-to-peer transactionality, unhosted wallets, exchanges that are uh, matchmakers and aren't custodians, you know, what's the regulatory responsibility of those that touch uh, those technologies or engage in those technologies? That's the most difficult question, I think, that regulators have to grapple with in the context of the way this technology operates. Because the more centralized this is, the more it looks like you're regulating financial institutions or other things that regulators are used to regulating. When you're talking about protocols and uh, unhosted wallets and other things, that don't fit the mold of a centralized clearinghouse, that then is the real challenge. I've got kind of one last question on this part on kind of rogue states, which is
0: uh, sanctions have been a tool used by the United States and others to try to, well, I suppose the way to put it is to try to bring some of these rogue states to heal, right? And you can get, you know, we can talk about Team America, World Police and the complexity around that geopolitically, but I think for the sake of our conversation, You know, one of the concerns that governments have expressed is that as things become more and more decentralized in the value transfer ecosystem, will something like a sanctions regime, which is part of what OFAC has put in the United States to kind of enforce, will that become an obsolete tool? Uh, And if so, you know, is it impeding the ability of legitimate governments, let's call them, a pro-social, you know, in the broadest sense of the word government to uh, provide some accountability or at least some consequence to these, these rogue state actors?
1: The answer is yes and no. I think there, there is a, a challenge and a risk to sanctions regime and classically how it's been uh, deployed uh, with these, these new technologies. I don't think it's a fundamental challenge. And, and, I, and I think you can point to, and we can look at several things that have happened in the environment that point to this. First of all, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which administers sanctions for the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government, has clearly tried to mark where sanctions apply in the crypto ecosystem. And and by doing so, also trying to affect international norms. Michael, to your point, you know what OFAC and Treasury say with respect to the financial system often and, and more often than not bleeds past. US borders because of the way markets work. And so OVAC has creeped further and further into the creep crypto ecosystem to mark where there are sanctions risks and sanctions problems. This goes right to the heart of the Blender IO uh, designation, mm-hmm. the Tornado Cash designation, which is OVAC saying, look, these are mixers, blenders, technologies that are enabling sanctions evasion, and in particular, sanctions evasion for North Korea which as we said, is a, sort of the apex of risk here. And we're then going to use our sanctions authority to market, to try to, uh, to freeze it, cabinet, um, and, and to, to try to use uh, those authorities. So you see that OFAC is trying to move further and further into the crypto ecosystem by using the tools. Secondly, it's clear that authorities are using the mechanisms of tracking and some of the elements of transparency of the crypto ecosystem to their advantage. And so the ability by the Department of Justice, for example, to seize on two occasions over $3 billion worth of crypto, the two highest and most historic seizures in DOJ's history over the course of months, is a very clear indicator that uh, enforcement agencies and OFAC are using these tools to actually track where the bad actors are operating, where they're, they're you know, stashing their illicit proceeds and where they're potentially mixing them and moving them. So that's also an interesting indicator. And the final thing I'd say is the, the sanctions are really empowered not just by the authorities of OFAC or, or the UN or or the EU, but it's the norms that they are driving and the risk that they are identifying that makes them most powerful. That is to say, The sanctions around human trafficking, sanctions around human rights abuse, sanctions around corruption, sanctions around terrorist financing, proliferation finance. These are all things that the international community, whether or not you're subject to American jurisdiction or not, subscribe to. And it's in part why the sanctions are so global in their impact. And those same norms apply in the legitimate uh, crypto ecosystem as well. Those that are engaged in legitimate crypto don't want to be engaged in terrorist financing. They don't want to be engaged in proliferation finance. They don't want to be aiding human rights abuses. So the very essence of why sanctions work and why they're so powerful still persists in an environment that is challenged by crypto technologies. The one thing I would say, Sheila, that is a a real risk and something we've written about someone who works now at CCI for you, Yaya Fanusi, and I worked on a piece called Crypto Rogues where the real question is, do the sanctioned regimes or, or even non-state actors find ways to connect uh, crypto payment platforms and do so at scale and volume in a way that allows them to operate uh, in parallel to or in evasion of the classic uh, formal system? That's really the challenge here. Can uh, North Korea and Iran and Venezuela, some rogue uh, criminal actors like Lazarus Group really operate independently using this technology. That's the real challenge here. And I think that's what regulators and uh, enforcement agencies are looking very closely at.
2: Okay, let's, um, let's drill down a bit further into this whole challenge. Cause you, what you're getting into is I think the, the heart of the tension that, that exists. And it's interesting you pointed out that on the one hand the DOJ has been using the technology. It's, it's arguably harder to escape and to conduct money laundering on scale unless they figure out the kind of uh, uh exchange uh, linking that you were talking about on a blockchain environment than it is say through suitcases of cash uh because of that traceability. But on the other hand, the community, I think crypto community was was up in arms about, as I'm sure you're aware, the Tornado Cash ruling precisely because it was a it seemed like a precedent-setting attack on software, on open source developers. And so where do we find this happy medium? Because the argument that I think a lot of sophisticated crypto people would make, and they would agree with you that they, that they certainly don't want to have all these rogue actors and illicit uses passing through the technology, but that there are tools within the tech itself, within cryptography, zero-knowledge proof and so forth, that could in fact allow for a sophisticated mechanism Allowing the privacy that is is really an integral part, not just of the human rights. People obviously highlighted the fact that it was used for sending money to Ukraine, for example, to hide the recipients of these humanitarian organizations from Russians, which seemed like a fairly positive in the US interest thing to be supporting. And so that you can find ways to achieve those ends and also the sort of financial inclusion ends, which can be also challenged by the heavy identification requirements from FATA from the others and yet allow for a degree of security if you use, you know, things like zero-knowledge proofs and other mechanisms, risk-weighted approaches, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we at with that? Because the impression from the community's perspective is that OFAC's just come in heavy handed and sort of swinging its bat around and basically said, this is how we're going to do it without sort of thinking through some of these nuances. Is there scope for a more nuanced technology-driven approach?
1: I think there is skill for that, Michael, and I do think, in some ways, this has to be industry-led. I think U.S. government agencies are going to use the tools and authorities at their command to deal with risk that they see in front of them. I think it's Pollyannish to think that regulators or authorities are going to let things happen and not do something about it, or at least try to. Right? And and in the Tornado Cash case, I know that there's there's an uproar, and I know there's litigation and the rest. But bear in mind, and this is a point we try to make in the North Korea crypto uh, piece, you know, there was such a a North Korea heavy component to what was happening through tornado cash, almost half a billion dollars of Lazarus Group proceeds being laundered through that. In listening to OFAC officials, uh, since the action was taken, they've said that nearly $2 billion of the 7 billion plus that had gone through tornado cash was tied to illicit activity. That's a very high percentage uh, and, and high volume of risk, right? And so in that regard, you've got to think about what, what does that risk represent and how do authorities and how does the industry itself uh, relate to it? The answer is it's a little mix of creativity on the part of authorities as to what authorities they can use. I've argued, Sheila has heard me say this before, that we need to think more creatively of the use of Section 311 of the Patriot Act, which is something we used when I was at the Treasury to identify bad banks. This is uh, an authority that allows the Secretary of the Treasury to identify primary money laundering concerns. That can be an institution like a bank, it can be a jurisdiction like North Korea, Uh, but it can also be a class of transactions. And I I think that Section 311 can be used in a pretty elegant way here in the crypto economy to identify risk for the system, to say, look, these classes of transactions that are doing this, this, and this, or touching this technology or this platform or in this jurisdiction, are primary money laundering concerns. So you have to apply the highest degree of diligence. Maybe there's a requirement, you know, for not only enhanced due diligence, but for you to unplug them from your system or to not allow that transaction to happen. Things like that. There are authorities that we can use more creatively. And then Michael, as you said, Uh, For things like uh, know your customer rules and customer due diligence requirements of the anti-money laundering world, things like zero-knowledge proof becomes really interesting, where you begin to square the circle of privacy and security on one side and transparency and exposure on the other side. And I think uh, that has to be part of the equation as we think about how do you apply the core principles that we're talking about and the policy balances that we need to have with the, the new technology. And so I think it, has, it requires creativity on the part of developers and the industry and some creativity on the part of government authorities.
0: You know, one I love that you brought up Wolfsburg earlier because, of course, I think there are actions that, to your point, be very, very, the, the multiplicity of legitimate actors. I'd say the vast majority of actors in this space who are uh, acting legitimately and want to continue to act in legitimate and pro social ways. You know, and part of what Wolfsburg is, is coming together and kind of saying, how do we self-identify practices that indicate those intentions, but also take those intentions and translate them into meaningful actions that are going to promote these licit activities and help us spot you know, illicit activity in a risk-based approach. But of course, anyone who's a long-time listener to the show or even a short-time listener will have heard me say that you know, the, 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 the boogeyman, if you will, of, of risk-based approaches is that oftentimes those who are de-risked, and we've certainly seen a lot of this in our current banking system, are you know impoverished people or nations or others who simply either don't get a seat at that table to have that conversation in the first place. And so the norms that are established or the rules that are established just don't accommodate the ways that they actually operate in practice or are able to operate. Or there's almost a deliberate over inclusion of you know, certain kinds of again, nations or actors or communities or whatever it is, uh, whether intentionally or otherwise, and the de-risking kind of approach provides uh, an imprimatur of reasonability to that, which I would argue is, has been highly problematic as one of the reasons I think so many of us are so compelled by these new systems in the first place whenever I, I hear risk-based approaches, yes, I think that is generally a very productive line of thinking about all of this, but I always worry about who gets caught up or swept up in, in some of that analysis, particularly when they're not at the table as part of the conversation.
1: Yeah, Sheila, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the de-risking phenomenon is is one that's bedeviled the banking community regulators and those that are committed to financial inclusion uh, for a long time. And there there hasn't been an easy answer. There's There's lots of reasons for it in different parts of the world and different institutions. But at the end of the day, you're right that there there is an exclusion of parts of the the global economy and of communities and of individuals that's harmful at the end of the day. And risk management is often used as the excuse. There are a couple of answers to that. One is risk management needs to be more precise, right? And so through our company, we advise uh, institutions around the world. And you know, we help them with their risk management, their risk assessments, and not all risk in Mexico is the same, not all risk in Lebanon is the same, not all risk in France is the same, right? So there has to be a much more nuanced view of risk in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Geographically, product risk, client type, that's first and foremost. Second is, you know, regulators have to mean what they say in this regard. They need to help institutions and take a, a certain degree of risk with institutions around their risk management i think that the shyness you see from institutions is a sense that there's zero tolerance uh, or a strict liability standard sort of embedded in the way they're judged you know if they get something wrong because they decided to uh, to bank a certain community or to have a, an operation in a certain country they're going to they're going to be fined or they're going to be sanctioned or so i think regulators have a responsibility of shaping that environment and even sharing the risk in some some cases. And the third point goes to the promise of the technology. And I think this is a real challenge for the crypto industry because the promise of financial inclusion and the ability to target assets and capital and resources to populations in need and to communities that have been unbanked or that have been left on the sidelines of the global financial system, you know, that promise needs to come to the fore, because I think that is one of the great use cases that policymakers can get behind, that everyone understands, and that, frankly, from a national security perspective, uh, squares the circle. Uh, and Sheila, you know, you, you and, and Michael referenced the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine use case. I remember hosting a group about five years ago of Venezuelan activists, NGOs, uh, crypto enthusiasts, trying to figure out a way of getting resources to people in need in Venezuela in an environment where the currency in Venezuela was uh, worthless and and getting uh, more and more worthless over time, where the regime wanted to control all the resources. The regime was a rogue state, to your point, Sheila, earlier. It was also corrupt. It was also subject to sanctions. And so what do you do in an environment like that where you need to get resources in? Crypto is a really interesting answer and potential solution. The same goes for Afghanistan where the people are in dire need of resources, but it's now a country that's run once again by a terrorist organization the Taliban, so designated by the UN and the US talk about a rogue state sort of a great example of that. How do you get resources into, you know, widows and orphans? Crypto can be a solution to that. I think there's real advantage to thinking about the shared risk, shared advantage of financial inclusion in particular in environments where we want to get resources in, we want to connect communities, maybe even dissidents, uh, and we want to make sure that that's not centralized or controlled by uh, the authoritarian government in charge. That is something really interesting for the crypto uh, enthusiasts to get behind, and also the national security and regulatory community to get behind.
2: Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up soon, because now you're touching on a bunch of stuff that I really go to the heart of what we often talk about i want to dive into here i'll just say a couple of comments and just want to finish up the one last question for you but like i like the fact you mentioned that banks and institutions feel like there's always this sort of compliance risk the need for clarity which which we hear so often from the industry and this is interesting it's the crypto industry saying this but it's actually the banking industry in this case that also needs clarity uh, because Yeah, there may well be the $3,000, you know, uh, limit for money laundering uh, AML uh, KYC requirements that you can apparently, you know, you can be exempt from, but that's just a guide. Banks will just, as we said, completely choose to de-risk certain communities because they're fearful that this could happen. So that fear is a function of uncertainty, right? So clarity is really important. And just to take this back to the Bahamas, the Bahamas is one of many small jurisdictions that made the proactive decision to sort of support a digital assets regime precisely because of the fact that they were being de-risked as a function of this lack of clarity and sort of heavier compliance requirements that, that went with it in the banking industry. So there's a need in my mind to not just give clarity to the crypto industry, but also the banking industry, actually for the purposes of their own interaction with cryptocurrencies, right? That, that in itself is seen as, as a problem. So huge issues here. And I'm glad you've gone to financial inclusion because it is, for many of us who got into this space, the reason that we're here almost. It is the thing that I think is very much a driver of the passion that many people feel for this space. And to see it constantly being constrained by, I don't know, both the rogue actors on one hand who are giving it all a bad name and then the hardline position on the other without finding this happy medium is extremely frustrating. And yet you mentioned CBDCs. Which I think is a really, I personally think there's a very interesting opportunity for the United, United States here to assert itself as a supporter of some of these broad, inclusive ideas. We've got China at the moment in the midst of, you know, the greatest evidence of of the failure of this authoritarian system. We've never seen protests like this, at least since Tiananmen Square. It's highlighting the idea that China's approach to government, and therefore to technology, is one that, that, that is likely to be heavily surveilled. The idea that the United States could get behind a more open system, with some of the ideas you're talking about, to be clearer on what is actually tolerable and what isn't, to use technologies that can to feed all this thing through, could in fact be the greatest moment for the US to actually extend really what is soft power into the world and challenge what, what these more authoritarian positions are coming back with. Afghanistan, classic example. It was the, the lead topic in the, the book that we wrote, The Age of Cryptocurrency, writing about these Afghan girls who were uh, receiving money and being able to sort of almost buck the patriarchal system as a result of that, shut down because the, the New York bit license brought in and the creators of this could no longer use that vehicle, right? So there's a lot of frustration around this. Is there anybody in Washington, thinking about this as an opportunity as opposed to a oh this is the way we have to fight the bad guys like finding this as a means to which the United States can be pro innovation pro inclusion pro human freedom and yet still be there as a leader in protecting our systems a bit of an editorial more than a, a question but i'd love to know it, it,
1: but it, but it poses lots of uh, avenues for inquiry and and the easy answer to your question is yes there there are Lots of people in Washington and certainly within the Federal Reserve Bank thinking precisely about these issues that you've just described, Michael. And I think it's part of the reason why the Fed has been slow in coming to a decision about a digital dollar. There's, uh, you know, many sort of systemic issues that they've got to worry about. There's also these strategic questions as to what happens internationally. So the answer to your question is, yes, people are thinking about this. There are plenty of debates happening internally. I think what you've raised is goes right to the heart of the national security opportunity uh, for the United States. In the first instance, who defines and how do we find the digital rails and payment systems of the future? Right, the United States should be at the heart of that. should Should be driving it. Should be setting standards. It shouldn't be China. It shouldn't be Russia. It should be the United States and other major, you know, banking centers around the world. In part to to reinforce. U.S. power, but also the principles of openness and transparency that are so critical to a, a functioning economy from our perspective. Secondly, there's an opportunity to reinforce the role of the dollar, right? One of, one of the great grand fears uh, spoken out loud in Washington in recent years is the demise of the dollar. It's not happening. Certainly, the yuan the, the and the, and the Remnant B aren't taking hold the way many would have assumed. And I would argue, and I've said this publicly, that China is losing the trust battle. They're actually weakening their hand for their currency, whether it's in digital form or otherwise, to become a a chief reserve currency uh, or a trading currency. It may force it on on some. Voluntarily, you would rather your assets be in dollars or yens or or pounds or or euros as opposed to B at this point. And finally, I think there's this question of decentralization versus centralization. And and you raise this, Michael. The challenge for the United States is how do you foment and and stoke innovation in this space, which is so much driven by decentralization, and have legitimacy and and regulation allows the industry to go to scale while not centralizing it the way that, that China and Russia and even Iran want to use this technology? Because like the internet, these are authoritarian regimes that want to use the technology to reinforce their power, to cloister their societies, and to exert control. That's what they want to do with these technologies. Uh, That's certainly not what the U.S. wants to do. And in fact, the U.S. needs to find ways of leveraging this technology to foment decentralization, to allow dissidents and human rights activists and communities of interest to operate But how do you do that in a way that doesn't then allow bad actors to exploit the system? That's really the Rubik's Cube here for the US. It needs to be at the center of gravity here, but it needs to drive a more decentralized modality for what the financial system looks like in the future. This is technology that's with us, regardless of the crypto blizzard we're weathering, and the US is going to have to grapple with it. So let's grapple
2: <laughs> I like that the blizzard that's the way it feels <laughs> yeah yep well thank you so much juan Zarati. that was uh, a, a great illuminating journey through the multiple competing challenging positions as we you know deal with all these fast moving changes in, in the global economy and the role that crypto and uh you know state-led policy and sanctions play in this really interesting stuff could have gone on you know, much further. Much, much appreciated that you joined us. Thank you to you. Thank you as always to my co-host, Sheila Warren. And thank you to everybody for listening once again to Money Reimagined. Come back again next week for another episode. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. With announcements by Abby Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.